Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, academics and farmers are increasingly concerned about the effects that climate change is having with the increasing spread of exotic diseases as extreme weather events sweep across the globe. A Riverina farmer is calling for Ukrainian refugees to be brought to Australia in a bid to alleviate worker shortages on dairy farms. And we've all heard about therapy dogs. But what about a therapy goat? You'll find out about that and much more today on Countrywide. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. First up today, though, rural Australians fear the removal of a fuel tax cut at the end of this month will be a huge strain on living and working in the bush. The Australian government's excise reduction ends on the 28th of September, meaning an increase of 22 cents per litre at the very least, something the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says won't have a major impact. But that's a view that many remote residents don't share, as Alex Trelaw reports. Rural Australia runs on trucks or freight. Uh, most of our stuff is has to be uh, freighted in or freighted out. And at the moment, some of the freight companies have put a surcharge on and some of those surcharges are north of 30%. Ernie Camp runs a cattle operation on Floraville Station on the Leichhardt River, 80 kilometres from the Gulf of Carpentaria. He says the rising cost of fuel has had an impact on his business. You know, um, putting in um, reliable uh, water supplies with more efficient diesel engines and converting some of it to solar has sort of hedged us in a positive way some bit. But but as certainly people are suffering, how long can they cope for? And we do need some relief in the not too different future. But how did we get here? The global pandemic and the conflict in Ukraine all played a part of pushing fuel prices up this year. Back in March, the Morrison government halved the tax charged on each litre of fuel sold in Australia by 22.1 cents. The price of fuel has continued to rise and fall throughout the year, but it's set to rise again when the fuel excise cut ends on September 29. Mary Ellen Blackett lives in Bullia in Queensland's northwest. She does a lot of driving and is expecting to feel the pinch when the fuel excise cut ends. The rising cost does impact a fair bit. We've got to travel for groceries and bits and pieces like that. So it's 300k in and 300k back, so it takes us about six hours. Mary Ellen also runs the Bullia Caravan Park and will have to increase prices to help soften the blow to her business. The only thing that hasn't gone up is our costs at the park, like our sites, what they're worth in our rooms. So that's something I definitely need to look into in the future as everything else continues to go up. You know, we might have to bump it up a couple of dollars or something like that. But I notice everywhere in town has put their prices up, you know, a dollar or 50 cents or whatever they've got to do to get by. Our freight suppliers are, are sort of struggling. We get all our stuff directly out of Brisbane and 
Now, freight bills anywhere from, at the moment, $2,000 to three and a half per week, sometimes up to five. Bob Spilsbury owns Bullier's only grocery store and is working hard to stay afloat with the rising cost of fuel. We run our own truck into Mount Isa weekly as well as, and fuel costs there are around 350 just the fuel without the wear and tear and the time involved in driving the truck. We have got to make sure we're buying correctly at the right price and from the top to the bottom, whether it's the price of power, whether it's the price of freight, everything, you know. Rural areas currently pay approximately 10 to 20 cents more per litre for petrol than their city counterparts. And there are growing concerns that when the excise ends, people living on the land will struggle to keep up with the rising cost of living. Any camp again. It certainly will have a big impact. It really is in the two hard baskets us in regional Australia because the distance required to travel either to a medical education or bring supplies in is such a long distance that nobody sees it, sees an immediate solution. So I suppose it's somewhat leaving a sleeping dog uh, lie. Burktown Grazier Ernie Camp, who lives on a remote Queensland cattle station, ending that report by Alex Trelaw. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Academics and farmers are increasingly concerned about the spread of exotic diseases as extreme weather events sweep across the world. As the climate warms, these diseases and their host insects, bats and birds are posing new threats to Australian agriculture, as Hannah Jost reports. Dr Prasad Paradka is Senior Research Scientist at CSIRO. He says there are more cases of these diseases being reported from Southeast Asia. So we are seeing an increase in detection and uh, increased threat. And uh, that's because of sort of several factors, and one of which is climate change, which is a main driver of this increased incidence and geographic distribution of these diseases. There are some direct effects of climate change, which leads to, and these are things like extreme events, so cyclones, which can blow an infected insect and bring the disease into this new geographic area like Australia. And once it's here, then local insects can transmit it. And this has been shown in case of smaller insects like biting midges or mosquitoes, which have been shown to be transported over long distance. But the other part is um, climate change also means increased average temperatures, which uh, can increase the geographic distribution of those insects, like exotic insects, which can come into Australia and make make a place here. Dr. Michael Ward is Chair of Veterinary Public Health at Sydney Uni. He told Michael Condon that climate change's effects can be seen clearly in particular areas. Probably the two areas where it's the clearest are vector-borne diseases, so mosquitoes and midges, and also parasitic diseases, so, you know, the worm-type diseases. So both of those probably do have, you know, the, the changing climate would have a direct impact, essentially sort of larger populations of either mosquitoes, midges or also worms as well, surviving longer, pathogens sort of reproducing faster. People have thought for quite some time uh, mosquito-borne type diseases, lumpy skin disease, and then in the human field, the uh, Japanese encephalitis outbreaks that we've seen. The other thing too, were Hendra disease, that seems to be moving south as well and the bats are moving. Is that, is that the climate uh, pushing the bats further south? Yeah, so that would be an example of this sort of indirect effect where climate might affect habitat and particularly, um, and that's known to be a cause of disease emergence and disease spillover, so things like Hendra virus, where the habitat's 
change. So it could be climate driven, where they're moving moving south. It could be sort of land clearing or change in horticulture, or you know El Nino impacts, drought impacts, all those sort of things that then shift the bat distribution, and then we get that spillover occurring. Dr. Chris Parker is the National Lumpy Skin Preparedness Coordinator with the Department of Agriculture. He says the disease is not a big concern for Australia yet, but it could be very soon. Lumpy skin is not close enough yet for the vector to blow into Australia, but if it's to spread further east and south within Indonesia, then it would be getting close enough to worry about. The disease is actually transmitted by biting insects, and the concern would be that in a big cyclone or a big weather event that those biting insects that are infected with the disease may well blow into the north of Australia. Some studies suggest there could be a risk of Nipah virus too as bats, which spread the disease, have been recorded moving between Malaysia, Indonesia and Australia. In 1998, Malaysia had a serious outbreak of Nipah, killing over 100 people. Thanks to Hannah Jose for that report. And sticking with diseases, Melbourne Royal Show organisers have banned pigs from this year's event because they are considered to have a higher risk of harbouring and spreading diseases, such as foot and mouth. Other Royal Agricultural Shows have introduced control measures, but the Melbourne event is the first to introduce a mandatory ban on the livestock species. While there have not been pigs on display at the Melbourne Royal Show for a few years now, the animals were still present in places such as the petting zoo. Pig coordinator at the Rare Breeds Trust of Australia, Katie Brown, welcomes the caution and says as pigs are disease amplifiers, their presence at shows has been declining for decades. It doesn't surprise me. Basically, there's been no show pigs as such at Melbourne for, I think it would be coming up to three decades since the remodelling of the showground and well before that, they had actually stopped running pig classes. The show that sort of replaced it in Victoria was Bendigo Show. And even four years ago, um, we ceased running pig classes there. And at that time, it was because of the threat of ASF, which is African swine fever, which was, you know, in, in Papua New Guinea and getting closer and closer to Australia before the COVID lockdowns. Since the Royal Show no longer shows pigs in that sort of agricultural capacity, what was the significance of the Bendigo Show for those people oh, that wanted to show their pigs? Absolutely, certainly for breeders, because it's. I think for farmers, showing animals has been a great tradition, you know, for hundreds of years. And it's it's a way that farmers connect. You benchmark your livestock, you see how you're going against other breeders. It's a great social thing. Um, you network with people. You know, farming's a fairly lonely and isolating business. So it's often a thing that was the highlight for your year and you would breed for it. You would produce and take your best animals. So, um, you know, the, the, it was a calendar highlight, I suppose. But with the other events that they have that may not be show events, which include petting zoos where children get to interact with the baby animals and there's little piglets, um, it's a wonderful experience because a lot of these kids never have an opportunity to connect with a farm animal. But there is still an inherent risk in those pigs being that close to the public. Really, anywhere where somebody could inter- inadvertently feed the pig something, a hot dog or something like that, it is a great risk. And to protect local producers, that to, to stop having a couple of pigs at different events is probably a very wise choice. In addition to foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, we've also had Japanese encephalitis virus in Australia. What are your concerns around pigs being exposed in Melbourne to the public? 
Oh, Japanese encephalitis virus is, is just a, a nightmare for pig producers at the moment. Like some farms are more than 13,000 pigs down in production. The danger with JEV that certainly I perceive, and I've been vaccinated, is that it can jump from the pig to humans via a mosquito bite. Humans and horses are dead end hosts, but in humans, if you are some way compromised, it is a very dangerous disease to get and it can kill people. So, so would you be concerned they, that having pigs in Melbourne, if they did go ahead with that, would actually be a risk to the public? You can blood test the pigs to make sure they're not carriers of it. At the moment, it's a lessened um, safety risk because the mozzies aren't around. But there's no definitive way to say that the pigs have not been exposed to GAB and are carriers and that they could infect the mosquito population. The risk to humans from JEV is far greater than, foot, you know, well, obviously the foot and mouth risk isn't. Humans can, can carry it, but it doesn't make you get sick. Socially, showing animals is of huge benefit, but it's really been on the decline in the pig industry for the past 30 or so years. Is that purely because of biosecurity threats? Not just biosecurity threats. Um, unfortunately, the pig industry is one of the most rapidly declining industries in Australia. When you look at, I can't remember, it's something like, I think we're down to 800 people who produce pigs Australia-wide or thereabouts. And that's declined from thousands and thousands, say in the 60s, where just about every dairy farm also produced pigs to, to use up the whey and different things. And, and back really prior to, say the 60s, when pigs sort of started to go indoors, most of the pigs in the country were purebred herds because, you know, stud breeders, it, it's a changing culture. A lot of animals have become hybridised because you get, you know, better production rates, you get bigger litter sizes, they grow faster, they might meet market targets, they're very predictable. So for coloured breeds, rare breeds, breeds that are fatter, they've just over the years slowly declined and there's only been sort of, I guess, niche marketing fanciers who've kept them going and it's got to the point many of the pig breeds are now down to under 100 or even under 50 registered breeding sows left in the country and we've not been able to import pig genetics for so long um, I think it's coming up to about 30 years so there's no semen no eggs no live pigs that can be imported into the country so the herd of pigs that we've got here is really significant and important because once we've lost them we will have lost them forever so if any of these eight pure breeds die out, that'll, that, that will be the end of the breed. Pig coordinator with the Rare Breeds Trust of Australia and Northern Victorian pig producer Katie Brown there. And I must stress, although Australia has got Japanese encephalitis virus present, foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease are still not in the country. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Jane McNaughton here with you today for Countrywide. When you're milking 900 cows three times a day, finding enough people to do the job can be difficult. So when the pandemic border restrictions cut off the supply of backpacker labour to Lachlan Marshall's farm at Blightley in the Southern Riverina, he started looking far and wide for workers. He's now leading a push to bring Ukrainian refugees to farms in his area and says there's a chance to fill the skills gap and do some good. Coming through COVID, coming out the other side, um, not only ourselves as dairy farmers, but 
in this region. There's a there's a shortage of people to uh, fill gaps in the agricultural industry, and, it, and it's really really tough at the moment to uh, recruit people. So that was number one. But but number two, um, having spent a fair bit of time in Europe and looking at dairy farms and things around the place, and you know a bit of an affinity for for family farming in Europe, and and you know it's a tough time over there. People are doing it really tough, and. And if there's an opportunity for me to help out and, and help them and help ourselves at the same time, well, why can't we all come together and solve a problem? And what sort of opportunities do you think there would be for Ukrainian refugees here in the Southern Riverina? Massive opportunity. Like I said, the skill shortage is huge. The opportunity is huge. Um, you know, people are, people are desperate to try and find people skilled and unskilled. Um, you know, our, our local sporting teams, our local communities are all starting to um, feel the exodus of people and, and the shrink in the community. Um, I think it would be fantastic for the local economy. Um, I think it would be fantastic for the local people as well. And uh, I suppose you've said that there's a skill shortage. Have you had to look far and wide for people to work in? Yeah, absolutely. We, we used to have quite a few working holiday visa holders working for us pre-COVID. Um, Post-COVID, I only have two, um, but we went through a very long and painful process to be registered under the PALM scheme, and we have eight Pacific Island employees here at the moment under that scheme, um, and that's that's going pretty good. Um, big culture shock for everybody involved to come from the beautiful, warm Pacific Islands to freezing cold blighty. You know, these are, these are people coming from somewhere where they're, they're desperate, looking for work, opportunities, set their lives up, make their you know, lives at home better for their families that are at home. And I'm kind of proud when they show me photos of their homes where they're building a new house at home or they've put a fence up to so that their daughter can't, you know, little toddler can't go onto the road or, or things like that now. You know, they're really large changes in their lives and, and uh, they've had to sacrifice a lot to come here away from their families and loved ones to do it. And I'd imagine it'd be a bit of a learning curve for them as well. Wouldn't be too many dairies that they'd be working on in the Pacific Islands. Would they're in the, in the kind of industrial sort of scale that you see here? Uh, of, of the eight, there had been one person who'd ever milked a cow by hand. I can imagine. Yeah, so it was a big learning curve. But to their credit, men and women of all ages... And they just got a beautiful heart. And I tell you, there is nothing more exciting or heartwarming than when you walk into a dairy and you can hear them singing as they're milking. Um, they, they're just amazing people. Paya for hour is from Tonga and hadn't even visited a dairy farm before she began working here nine months ago. But she says it's something she's enjoying. The cows and we do feeding the cows and moving them around and especially the, the new ones, the new ones that I have to push them in. Why did you decide to come and work in Australia? It's an opportunity that, that we really want back in, uh, in, in Tonga. It's a... Um, we really wanted to work for our families, providing for our futures and something. Um, me and my husband both working in here. They are really happy because we can provide uh, anything they, they want. They can uh, call us what they need and we just can uh, just send them money. Paya Fa'awa, who's from Tonga, but currently working on a farm in Blightly, ending that report from Emily Doak. 
And staying in the dairy shed, the dairy industry has been making a consorted effort to utilise bobby calves instead of sending them to market at a young age. Bobby calves are animals typically slaughtered within a week from birth, as dairy cows need to give birth at least once a year to produce milk for supermarket shelves. But some farmers are using beef cattle semen to impregnate their cows, resulting in valuable dairy beef calves. Kirsty Kitely is the general manager of investments with Prime Value Dairy. She's recently started selling dairy beef from her farm in Port Ferry in Victoria's West and says educating consumers that dairy beef isn't the meat of an old dairy cow is vital to the future of the industry. We've been doing dairy beef for quite a few years and in the past we would just take the animals to the, to the local sale yards and, and just get whatever price we could get on the day. About three years ago, I visited the um, Sheehan's Meat at Port Ferry and sort of asked would they be interested in buying um, meat, local meat, and the reaction I got was that they weren't very, they weren't keen at all. But I don't really give up very easily, so I sort of went back late last year and sort of said, are you sure you don't want to buy locally grass-fed beef? And the attitude had completely changed. So um, they actually said, well, actually we do, because our customers that are coming in, it's one of the first things they ask, is it local? And is it grass-fed? And they're wanting to know the provenance. They're wanting to know where the product is coming from. So from February, we've been supplying Shen's butcheries at Port Ferry, our local dairy beef. And what's the response been from the butchers and the consumers of that cut? It's been amazing. I was a bit nervous the first time I walked back into the butchers after they'd, you know, cut the carcass up and started selling it. But um, basically walked in and the staff sort of said to me, what is it you do to your meat? And I said, oh, why? And they said, it just tastes so great, you know. Um, and one of, one of the butchers has actually been a butcher and a chef for 25 years. And his comment was, I've been butchering and a chef for 25 years and that's the best tasting meat that I've ever eaten. We've had a really good response. Take us back a few steps. Why did you actually decide to go into the dairy beef market when there's, it's still relatively small in Australia? Uh, look, you know, there is a dairy beef market. I come from New Zealand, so there's a dairy beef market in New Zealand. Really can't stand the bobby calf industry, you know. Um, it's, it's just it's not acceptable for, to be able to take calves to slaughter at that young age. So we've always, we've always um, done dairy beef. The great thing now is that with sex semen, we can actually get our dairy replacements a lot easier using sex semen and then go straight to doing beef. So we don't, you know, it's not a, it's not a product that's a waste product. It's, it's, it's a value-add product and it's a good value-add to milk. At the conference today, there was a lot of discussions around how the popularity of farmers taking up dairy beef is linked to the ecchi. Obviously, at the moment, cattle prices are quite good. But when the market isn't so prosperous, have you noticed in Australia or New Zealand when you were there that farmers are less interested in pursuing dairy beef? Yeah, and more so here in Australia. We've been here for 26 years, so and th- and that's what happens. One year you rear them, you don't get paid anything. The next year you make a lot of money out of them. So that's why it's really important that the dairy beef industry build a brand and build and decide where their product's going to sit. Now, I believe it's not going to be a um, premium product like a marbling of the of the Wagyu, but I believe that it can sit underneath the Wagyu. You know, so we've got to establish a brand and a product and get it out to consumers and show them that this is something they want to eat all the time, not just, you know, not just every now and then. So when no one's ever really done that before, they just, you know, like I said, they just sort of sold them at the stockyards and sale yards and said, oh, hopefully we'll get paid a reasonable price. 
So we need to educate the consumer about how good this product is. It is extremely good product. It tastes really good. It's got really good um, flavor and it looks really good. So, and then tell the whole story about why we're doing it. You know, that we are solving this issue with the bobby carp issue in the dairy industry and, and value adding. And for dairy farmers to think about, you know, if milk prices drop, well, you've still got, you've got an alternative. You've got the beef as well and, and using the two together to, to value add your business and improve your bottom line. Owner of Port Ferry Beef and General Manager of Investments with Prime Value Dairy, Kirsty Kitely. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. We've all heard of therapy dogs, but what about a therapy goat? Well, a boa goat called Baz became a star attraction at the Royal Adelaide Show because of its gentle temperament. Clare High School teacher Belinda Stringer says Baz is quick to bond with the school students and showgoers. He was born at our school last year, so he was pretty much hand-raised with his twin sister Shaz. So yeah, he's just a really, really tame goat that the kids love spending time with and is happy to have anyone come and have a pat. So lots of kids have been flocking here to give him some love. As you said, he's become a bit of a therapy goat at the show. Are you thinking of using him for a therapy animal at the school as well? We've got a few kids that probably really benefit from spending time with animals. We used to have a proper animal therapy program at school, but unfortunately the lady that ran that had to move away. So there are some of the kids um, in our disability unit that often will come over and have a pat with Baz, and I guess it just kids love being around animals and you know gives them some confidence, and, yeah, he rewards them with some love. What makes a good therapy animal? I guess one that doesn't run away when the uh, kids come near him and also that, yeah, he's just really calm and he's very placid nature and he's just very friendly and likes coming and greeting people when they come to see him. He's a very handsome-looking goat too, isn't he? <laughs> he's not shy. No, he's a little bit bossy when it comes to the food with the um, other goats, so he probably gets first dibs when they get fed, so he is quite a stocky boar goat. No, he's doing well. So do the other goats need therapy maybe to deal with Baz's temperament? <laughs> maybe they do, they do. They're, they're pretty tolerant. I think they know where they are in the pecking order, so they know they're not at the top, and, yeah, they're okay with that. And so you mentioned that you'd had therapy animals used at Clare High School before. What sort of animals uh, have been used in that program? Oh, so we had a lovely lady called Liz Sparks that used to come in and she used to bring anything. She always had a kangaroo in a pouch that she was looking after and she would often bring in baby miniature goats. And she had lots of different birds and just a lot of kids, you know, with sort of trauma backgrounds and those sorts of things would just go and spend a lesson or two a week with those animals and a lot of them really flourished in that environment. It's pretty amazing the power of animals mm. and, and working in ag, my colleague was saying today, yeah, that you know, when you're doing that work, sometimes it doesn't feel like work as well, and yeah. it gives a lot of confidence yes. too. Is that something yeah. you see? Yeah, definitely. And a lot of kids haven't actually spent that much time around animals, and when they spend the time, you can see, you know, their faces just look fantastic and they're just loving it. So, yeah, it's brilliant. You're saying that you've had lots of people coming up and wanting to give Baz a pat. Uh, this is the first year in a while that the show's had people here, other than the students and the and the ag section of it. Yeah, I guess, you know, what have you noticed on, on people's faces as they do approach the Baz and, and 
you know, get up and close to him to be something that a lot of city people haven't maybe done for a while. Yeah. Well, Whatever. to start with, the kids that have been in with Baz have just been calling out to people, would you like to pat Baz? And then, oh, they come over cautiously and just, yeah, pure joy, I think, is on um, the faces of the kids, definitely. And a lot of adults are enjoying having a pat too. But um, now we've had people obviously coming up and asking to see Baz. So, yeah, that's a bit of a novelty. So it's, yeah, it's really lovely. An overnight celebrity. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brady Grant and I'm an ag student at Clare High. You've been working a bit with Baz here today. How's he, how's he handling all the attention? Baz loves attention. It's his favourite thing. Everyone loves Baz. You can touch him and he doesn't care. The others aren't so friendly, but Baz is always friendly. How does Baz's temperament compare to the others for someone who wouldn't know something about, you know, what, what goats are normally like and how they normally react around people? You know, they don't wag your tail at you like a dog, for example. The others, if you touch them, they'll just squirm around a bit and then usually run off. But Baz will just sit there, no matter the person. If they touch him, like hit him or something, he just will stay there, won't act badly. And he's just a really good goat to get to know. What do you like about um, working with goats? Oh, I just love seeing the smile on people's faces when they haven't really got in contact like us with the goats and just love teaching like the ones, not Baz, but the other lot of them at the start of the year, they couldn't walk at all and now they're walking brilliantly. What's the go with your really colourful shirts other than having a very um, handsome and friendly goat? So these are trademark shirts and they raise mental health awareness and they also look really stylish, which is cool. I've been asked heaps of times about them and complimented all the time. Might need a new, new uh, category at the Royal Show then for best therapy animal. Yeah, if it come from lovable animals, Baz wouldn't even compare to the others. He'd be a winner by outright. Claire High School student Brady Gray ending that report by Eliza Burlidge. Baz, what a champion. On that note, that's all we've got time for today on Countrywide. If you'd like to check out anything else in the rural department, you can head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural.